we had a minister come here some time ago and I asked him why he was here on a Wednesday night and not in his church and he said, well, I came apart so I wouldn't come apart. <laughs> well, occasionally uh, I feel the need for that and um, I appreciate the opportunity to get to go apart a little bit. So I'll be doing that. Uh, I will accompany the elderberries to Nashville. I want to make that very clear. I am accompanying them, and I want that distinction because I'm very young, you know. But anyway, I will accompany them to Nashville, and then we're going to take um, the next week through Thursday. So uh, next Wednesday night, Francis Wall will talk to you on a good subject, the joy of Jesus. And in a sense, I'm talking about that uh, tonight. I think she's going to zero in more on the joy Jesus had. I'm going to zero in more tonight on the joy you ought to have in Jesus. Um, and you'll uh, know what I mean a little bit later in that. Then on May the 19th, which is two Wednesdays from tonight, um, because I never deal with controversial subjects, I'm going to speak on what is this thing called divorce. <laughs> and um, my title, you might be interested in, is uh, God is not kidding about Kedushin. And so if you don't know what Kedushin is, you come Wednesday night a week and you'll find out. And also find out what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage and uh, all those good things. Recently, Newsweek magazine uh, had a headline of an article, Down with Mother's Day. <laughs> Next, uh, this Sunday is Mother's Day. And uh, they went on to talk about doing away with homemaking and mommyism, and that women need to be liberated out of the mundane drudgery, boredom, and imprisonment of home and family so they can seek personal fulfillment and personal rights. Now, believe it or not, I also read another article on mother, mothers, and it was entitled Motherhood and Profanity. <laughs> Thought that was interesting. And it was written by Elizabeth Elliot. And I would like, Elizabeth Elliot is one of my favorite Christian authors. She is the widow of a missionary. She ministered to the Alcoa Indians in Ecuador. And she wrote on motherhood and profanity. And this is what she said. She said, they are related when you realize that profanity isn't just swearing or taking God's name in vain. It also means to treat as meaningless something that is filled with meaning. Treating as common that which is hallowed. Treating with contempt or irreverence that which is sacred or good or worthy. Profanity trivializes those things which are anything but trivial and often priceless and eternal. 
She says, men as well as women have listened to those quasi-rational claims and have failed to see the fatal fallacy and have capitulated. Words like personhood, liberation, fulfillment, equality have a convincing ring and we have not questioned their popular definitions or turned on them the searchlight of Scripture or even of our own common sense. We have meekly agreed that the kitchen sink is an obstacle instead of an altar. And we have obediently carried on our shoulders the chips that these reductionists have told us to carry. Elizabeth Elliot said, this is what I mean by profanity. We have forgotten the mystery the dimension of glory. It was Mary herself who showed it to us so plainly by the offering up of her physical body to become the God-bearer. She transfigured for all mothers, for all time, the meaning of motherhood. She cradled, fed, and bathed her baby, who was the very God of very God, so that when we cradle, feed, and bathe ours, we may see beyond that simple task to the God who in love and humility dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Those who focus only on the drabness of the supermarket or on the onions or on the diapers themselves, having an inkling of the mystery that is at stake here. The mystery revealed in the birth of the baby and consummated on the cross. My life for yours. Now you know what I'm teaching on tonight. And you might wonder, why is he going down that rabbit trail to get to what he's teaching on. But people do this with singleness. They do the same thing. In one of his letters, Paul said that he actually recommended single life. In another one of his letters, he said, I have learned in whatever state I am therein to be content. Preacher friend of mine who was forced to minister in Mississippi said that's his theme verse in the Bible to learn to be content in whatsoever state he is. And he's been able to do that in Mississippi. I don't think that's what he's talking about, what Paul was talking about. I read a little mini book this week called Passing Shadows. And it was delivered to me uh, from Preston Parish who with uh, Gladys Keating has a ministry now called Awakenings. And he sent me this book and it was about a man who recovered from a lengthy illness. And after he recovered from the lengthy illness, he decided that he would do with his family what he always wanted to do. He wanted to go out west and spend the whole summer in his van going out west with his family. So they planned for months. And they finally got ready. And they started out and the first five days was just glorious. And then the morning of the sixth day, his wife got up before dawn and she was loading the suitcase 
into the van and she slipped on a wet leaf and she fell and she broke her leg in three places and they had to go to the doctor, had to put a cast on and suddenly they realized that their whole trip was off. And so on the fifth day, they turned the van away, around, and instead of going to California, they went back to Maine. And they got on the outskirts of their hometown. It was raining cats and dogs, and they had to stop there because they couldn't get out of the van with uh, the, the wheelchair and, and the cast and everything, and all they could see out the window was this drab, muddy mess of a field. And they looked at it. And they felt so downcast. And then they heard the glorious noise of a bird beginning to sing. And it was beautiful. And there, looking at that soggy, wet field, they learned the meaning of the statement, bloom where you are planted. Now, there is a dimension of what the Bible says about doing that, and a dimension about not profaning motherhood or singleness. And I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to begin there tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Just a few verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Paul said, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, and he was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now, the reason he said that was one reason he felt the return of Christ was imminent. And he felt that you should have as little baggage to your life as you could have. And in his estimation, a single person could concentrate more on the things of the Lord, devoid of having to concentrate on the concerns of their spouses. But second of all, I think he felt that there's some people that can hear the Lord better being single than being married. And then in verse 17 of chapter 7, he said, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and thus I direct to all of the churches. Now he said, everybody's not called to this. 
One of the gifts of the Spirit. Not often listed in the gifts. One of the gifts of the Spirit is the gift of celibacy. And some people have that gift. Some people don't. And so he says, this is not for everybody, but don't profane any state wherein people who are Christians live. One wag has said about marriage, he likened it to flies on a windowpane. He says the ones on the outside want to get in, and the ones on the inside want to get out. <laughs> so when you think about marriage, you have to think about that. But you see, we're sold a bill of goods in this country that says if you're normal, then you're married. And if you're not married, then somehow you are abnormal. And also, there's a physical and emotional part of every individual, I think, that, um, that this leans toward being a wife or being a husband or being a parent. I think every man is created with a desire to protect and to provide. I think every woman is created with a desire to be a mother or at least, you know, she's raised with the idea this is what a woman's supposed to do. And so there's something in her that probably responds to that. And that's the reason I think in a majority of cases it is God's will that people be married. But if everybody's supposed to be married, then something's wrong with God. Because he had made an equal number of men and women. And it depends on where you are. Some places where you are, there are more men than women. Some places where you are, there are more women than men. But if God intended everybody to be married, he would have an equal number. Now, I also think that there is a misconception that to be a whole person, you have to be married. And some pe preachers teach that a person is only half a person until he gets married. And in the marriage service, half of a person comes with another half of a person, and they become a whole person. That ain't what the Bible says, incidentally. In Genesis 2.24, it does not say the two halves shall become one. It says a man shall leave his mother and cleave unto his wife, not half a man, not half a wife, and they too shall be one. That's the reason in the unity candle, I've tried to change that. Because when I came here and they used the unity candle in weddings, they'd have the two candles and have them lighted, and then they would take them and they would light that center candle, and then they would blow the two out. And I say to the people that come to me for counseling, now you can do that if you want to. You can do it any way you want to. That's not a theological precept. But I think it is a much better symbol when you take those two lighted candles and you light the center one and then you leave those two lighted and put them down. Because you do not surrender your uniqueness when you get married. 
In fact, that's the genius of, I think, the healthiest kind of union. And I don't think necessarily people who are like ought to get married. Sometimes people that are, who are too much alike that get married have real problems, particularly if both of them are sloppy. Their house is a mess. You need one that's sloppy and you need one that's neat. You know, I, the two need to kind of come together. I'm a romanticist. My wife is much more practical. And through the years, that's worked big time for us. Really has. And I've caused her to be more romantic and she's caused me to be more practical. And it works that way. But it doesn't teach that a person is half a person until they get married. And don't forget, the most complete person who ever lived on the earth was single. That was Jesus. And he wasn't half a man. No way, shape, or form. Then some people feel that if they don't get married, it's God's judgment on them because they haven't been good. And the flaw in this reasoning is that God knows that only true fulfillment and happiness can come with marriage. So therefore, if he wants to punish someone and not let them be fulfilled and complete, then he's going to keep them single. That isn't true. I'm a pastor and I counsel a lot of people. And by far, by far, most of the miserable people I counsel are married. By far. A whole lot more come to me that are married than are single. Also, I don't, I don't think I've ever met any person who said to me, before I got married, I was a meaningless clod. My, my life had no meaning. I was just a kind of a speck on the universe. But then I met my beloved, and we got married. And that's what fulfilled me. I am the Christian I am today. I am the person I am today. I have a complete, fulfilled life because I married. I don't ever remember anybody telling me that. And if they did, I would disagree with them because that ain't, pardon my language, what the Bible says. It doesn't say that marriage is supposed to fulfill you. Let's look in the book of Acts, Acts 17, beginning at verse 26. And let's look at what the Bible says is supposed to forgive, uh, supposed to fulfill us. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 26. And he, that is God, made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, 
that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. Why did God bring us into being? Why has he placed us in a particular geographical location? Why has he placed us in a particular state, married or single? It's so, not that we would find our fulfillment in our geography or in our particular station in life, but that we might find our fulfillment in him. Our purpose is to seek God and find Him, and our spirit is made for communion with Him. And that is what fulfills us. And no marriage partner and no friend can do that. And the most satisfied people I've met, married or single, are the ones that have cultivated this relationship. A few years ago, I took a week of my study leave and I went to a monastery in Conyers, Georgia. And I met men there who have committed their entire lives to the Lord. They will never get married. They will never have a family. They will not only not have a wife or a husband, they will not have a family. They have committed themselves to spend the rest of their life. They never take a vacation, never go on a trip, never do anything. They stay in one place. They spend eight hours a day in work. They spend eight hours a day in worship. And they spend eight hours a day in sleep. That's 24 hours. That's what they do. Now that's barren. I mean, that's barren. Their first worship service is at 4.30 in the morning. Their last worship service is at 8 o'clock at night. And one of the happiest, most well-balanced, most terrific people I ever met was their abbot, the one who is in charge of the monastery. And he finds his fulfillment in his relationship to his Lord. And so what would be for some people a very barren existence is for him a continual joy. Now you contrast that with some married folks, you know. What about the beautiful people? I read the other day where Tony Curtis, now some of you children don't know who Tony Curtis is, but Tony Curtis in my day was the real good-looking swinger. He's just recently married his fourth wife. And the article was talking about much of the misery that he has encountered in his life. So we begin to see what Paul meant when he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The state doesn't make all that much difference. It's this 
that makes the difference. The vertical relationship. And if this is right, then almost any state can be or can have fulfillment and contentment. Let's look in Psalm 16 because I think it speaks to this. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory. Now, let me say what it means when he says he's at my right hand. That doesn't literally mean he's at my right hand. The right hand in Hebrew, the Hebrew thought, the right hand is the hand of power. So God is protecting me. I don't have to worry about the future, the past or the present or the future, because God's protecting me. I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. See, some folks teach you can't be content outside of marriage because of sex. You are a sexual being. And if you can't have that fulfillment, you can't ever be content. That's not what the psalmist said. He said, not because I got married, not because I found a wonderful sexual partner. He said, because God is at my right hand. Therefore, I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. Now, the heart is the emotions. The emotions. Somebody said, what is your chief sexual organ? What is the primary sexual organ? And the answer is the brain. That's the primary sexual organ. If that don't function right, the rest doesn't function right. And of course, deeper than that is the heart, the center of emotions. And the psalmist says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, and the soul again, that is the emotional part. Thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou will make known to me the path of life. In marriage is fullness of joy. That isn't what it says. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And in sex, there are pleasures forevermore. It's not what it says. It says, in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, there are different kind of pleasures. And I know a lot of people that get married for sex. In fact, maybe most people do. And they think that's the thing that will make up for all the rest. And it's really not. And it's this that makes up for all the rest, and that's where the joy, and that's where the pleasure comes from. Now, in contrast, the Bible says the way of the single 
or widow is hard. That's not what it says. It says the way of the transgressor is hard. It also says the pleasures of sin are but for a season. And it contrasts that with this, the intimate wisdom of God. And it says, for its profit is better than profits of silver, and its gain than fine gold. She, that is this, the relationship with God, is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with that. Hear that. This is what is important. And nothing you desire compares with that. That's the reason Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. There are a few people that seek singleness. I have talked to almost nobody that's ever said to me, I decided very early I didn't want to be married and I want to be single the rest of my life, but some should. For instance, again, I quoted Paul in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. Let me read it to you out of the New International Version. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigns him or her and to which call God has called him or her. And if you're in that place, then you should be content with what God has provided for you. Also, Paul says sometime it's better not to be married. It might be better for you not to be married. Now, there's no doubt that there are many joys, many pleasures that married people have that if you're not married, you won't have. Um, and I think, like I said, God gives most people the desire to be married. I think that's the reason that Paul says in Corinthians you don't sin if you marry. See, he's really heralding the advantages of single life. But then I think he got a little bit concerned and thought, well, now I'm, I'm liable to, these people get the idea that I'm against marriage. So he said, I don't say that if you marry, you, you are sinful. But I say there is some purpose in uh, married life. Um. But there's another side of the coin to it, too. Um, married life is much more complex and complicated than single life. Married life has many more problems. It has the problems with in-laws. It has the problems with children. It has the problems, you know, with just uh, two people trying to, to come together and put things together. And singles don't have that. Um, in fact, when Paul talks about married life in that 1 Corinthians 7, one verse says, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. 
He says, people that get married, some of them will have trouble in this life. And you might have a lot less trouble if you're not married. Also, he thinks that if you're not married, you can have a much more undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's look again in 1 Corinthians 7 and read what he says here. 1 Corinthians 7, let's start at verse 32. 1 Corinthians 7, 32. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interest are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now he's not saying that single people are more holy than married people. Might seem like he's saying that, but that's not what he's saying. Just like when Elizabeth Elliot says, don't, don't profane motherhood. She's not saying that the woman who doesn't want to be a mother and wants to have a career, that's not wrong. But she's saying the one that doesn't want to be a mother and have a career shouldn't tell the one who wants to be a mother and raise her family that she's stupid and that she's not fulfilled and that she's not released. Paul just says there are different calls for different people. And the most important thing to decide what your call is, is how your devotion to the Lord can be undivided. Now let me tell you how a person who's single, his devotion to the Lord might not be undivided. Now he might say, well, I can be more more have a more single devotion to the Lord if I'm not married. But... Suppose he desires with all his heart and soul and being to be married. Suppose he has a real hard time with, with corralling his sexual desires and has a constant problem in wanting a sexual relationship. Well, his devotion to his Lord is going to be divided. So it would be better for that person to be married, he would be less undivided. But also, it might be that some people will find that getting into a marriage relationship would cause their relationship to the Lord to be uh, divided. Now, I'm not saying that married people, in talking about this, have all the problems. <laughs> and single people don't have problems. Single people have problems. Sometimes single people have problems that married people ought to have. For instance, when I was an evangelist, I went to a church in Mississippi, and if you ever come to my home and walk in my living room, you'll see a beautiful uh, glass mirror. 
above the couch in my living room that was given to me by, by that woman. And she worked in a factory that made these things. Very generous woman. Her sister married a jerk, an alcoholic. And the sister developed cancer. The jerk didn't. I don't understand that. I really don't. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Lord, how, how come some of these jerks didn't get sick? But anyway, he didn't get cancer. His wife did. And she died. And so her sister, this woman that gave me the mirror, took her sister's three children and raised them. And she had a lot of difficulty raising those children that, you know, her sister, um, you know, uh, was really supposed to raise. And so sometimes single people take on the problems of married people. So it's not that you stay single because it's easier or you stay married because it's easier because believe it or not, we're not supposed to go after what's easy. Where'd you ever get that? The Lord hadn't promised us a rose garden because we're not better than our Lord and He didn't have one. And so we're not to seek for serenity we're to seek for saintliness. And sometimes saintliness comes with problems. And that's the reason Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, each one should retain a place in life that the Lord has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him. And our concern is not that we be fulfilled or we be liberated or we don't be imposed upon. That's what the world would tell you. Our concern is that we be what God wants us to be. And my dear friend down there in Mississippi was some kind of imposed upon. And yet every time I got around her, I wanted to kiss her feet because I saw a saint. And so that's what we're going after. Let's look in Psalm 145 for just a minute as we start to wrap this up. Psalm 145. Beginning with verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear Him. Think about it. Should we go after fulfilling our desires? Or should we go after fearing Him? And fear doesn't mean be scared of Him. It means be sure you're aligning yourself with Him. 
You're being what he wants you to be. And if we do that, then the Bible says he will fulfill the desire. Also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And the Bible says God will withhold no good thing from them that love him. God will withhold no good thing from them who love him. Now sometimes we think we know what's good and we think we know what's best but sometimes we can be mistaken. But we can't be mistaken by this. If we love the Lord if we're yielded to the Lord and we fear the Lord then he will give us what is best for us. So you can trust Him. Whether you're married, whether you're not married, you can trust Him. This is what Jesus did. Think about Jesus. Hear about all those stories about how He said little children come to Him. About how He held the children on His knee how he ministered to a lot of women, how women responded to him. He was tempted in all ways as we are. So he knew sexual desire, but he trusted God. And he was never married. He didn't have a bed of roses. He was crucified on the cross and put to death. That wasn't good. But it was. Because after the death, it says God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, now every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. True, he never got married. True, he had a very painful death. But there's nobody who ever lived that had a more meaningful life than Jesus. Because he trusted the Lord. If you've ever read any gospel light literature, you have read of an author by the name of Henrietta Mears. Henrietta Mears, as a young girl, fell in love with a young man and wanted to get married. And they had set the date. And then she began to be uneasy. And she began to sense that something was wrong. And she began to sense that something was wrong here with this relationship. And she was impressed that God was jealous of her love and wanted all of her love. 
And so she turned the young man down, although she loved him. But she didn't love him enough. And she wasn't about to mess this up. She never married. She became the director of Christian education at the First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, California. And she had a Bible class every Sunday morning that averaged in attendance three to four hundred people. In the years that she taught that class, over five hundred people went into full-time Christian service out of that class. And within six months of her death, two biographies were written about her. And one of them had a uh, introduction in the flyleaf by Billy Graham. And Billy Graham said, no woman other than my mother and my wife has had as great impact impact on my life as Henrietta Mears. God will withhold no good thing from them that love him. Father, we just thank you Father, you know what's best for us, and we don't. And teach us to trust you and not dictate to you how you can bless us. And Father, sometimes that trust is hard, just like when your son went to the cross and was hanging there. And he was hurting, and he cried out, God, why are you forsaking me? So sometime when we're married, we hurt. And sometime when we're single, we hurt. And you don't always take away the hurt. And help us to know that. But help us to know, Lord, Father, tonight I pray for those who are single here. that you will give them your contentment and your assurance. I pray for those who are married, that you will do the same thing. And I pray that neither those who are single or no, those who are married will take refuge in their state as that which can give them fulfillment. But look to you for that fulfillment that only comes through your spirit. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.